City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, it's the third Wednesday of the month. We're going to be talking housing today and we've got Howard Morosi on the line. Um, he's going to be chatting away to us about a number of issues. But first, uh, a few other things. I'll just, oh, hang on, we better just have this first. That's it, the pouring of the tea, it's done. Before I go on to what I really want to talk about, I thought one little nice little item this week uh, from Germany. There's a, a dog called Balu, B-A-L-O-U, a bit like Cat Balu or something, but this one's a dog described as an absolute unit of rippling canine muscle who's been trained from birth, he's now 17 months old, uh, to be a police dog. He's a, he's a Rottweiler, so you'd think, you know, very good. But he's been expelled from, from police dog school because he's too nice, he's too sweet-natured, and he, um, he has a gentle temperament, so he's just not suitable for the job. And they, they threw him out because he fell short on several points, which I assume were that he, he wouldn't attack the bad guys strongly enough. But anyway, I just thought it was a nice little story that a, a Rottweiler was thrown out for being too nice. <laughs> That's pretty cute. But what I really want to talk about today is that today, Monday, as we record, and two days ago as we go to air, is the 50th anniversary by date and by day, because it was on a Monday when it happened, of federal intervention into the Victorian ALP. And this was a, this was a key issue at the time. The state ALP, the state um, executive, was considered to be far too left-wing by the federal forces in the ALP. Uh, because it took stands on a number of issues, and in fact, it was for a bit was in fact a, a genuine left-wing body at the time because there had been the split in the ALP, and in retrospect, it it was a bit of an anachronism because it it occurred during that period when the right-wing unions weren't in the ALP, and so you had an ALP controlled by left-wing unions, and it was policies. For instance, we. Opposed, and I make I make the point. This is a this is a bit of some self indulgence because I was actually on that executive, which was scratched, uh, which was sacked at the time. But we did things like oppose the Vietnam War from the outset, when in fact the federal body and the state ALP, the state parliamentary leader Clyde Holding at the time, said it would be political disaster to oppose the war because, as usual, when the war started. The media was describing anyone who opposed it as absolute traitors to the cause, etc. But we also took stands on issues like state aid uh, as a conference, and it could still be policy because it might never have been rescinded. But at the 1969 or 70 state conference, there was a motion carried to support abortion on demand, for instance, way back then in 69, 70. The main thing, though, they went for us on was, was the state aid issue because we totally opposed state aid to private schools and we argue that if people want to have their own private school good luck to them but they have to pay for it themselves and the state provides a perfectly good system so there are a number of issues around which they considered this this state executive to be far too left-wing for instance we and i didn't move the motion we got uh, for Caldwell, the former party leader to move it and i seconded it at a state, the state conference after John Zarb, the first draft resistor put in jail, was in Pentridge, and we actually got buses at lunchtime at the conference on a Saturday and took the buses to Pentridge and then reconvened the conference as a conference outside Pentridge to oppose the jailing of John Zarb. And all this was seen by the federal body as going far too far, and they claimed that the Victorian party was an anchor on their chances of winning an election. Now, I don't, that certainly wasn't true. By 72, in fact, when Labor did win the election, anyone could have won that election, I would think, because um, Billy McMahon was on the nose. The government had been in for years and years. And also the Vietnam War, but they said we shouldn't oppose from the outset, by this time was a major winner for them. And so I, I firmly believe that if they'd sacked us or not, that Labor still would have won that 72 election. 
What it did do, of course, was formalise factionalism in the ALP. There had always been factionalism there. But after federal intervention, the night after it, in fact, about four or five of us met and decided to form a, a faction and a, and a fight back. And we then convened a meeting of left-wing union leaders the following week and we formed what became the Socialist Left Faction. And for a long period, it was a very exciting place to be because the early days of Socialist Left, we met once a month at a hall in North Melbourne. Everyone bought their own lunch and we had a... And we spent the whole day discussing issues and that was the, it was absolute democracy and it wasn't until sometime later when people decided we should have an executive and a bureaucracy and then you had people starting to do deals with other factions that it began to come apart. But for a period there, it was a very exciting place to be and a genuine left-wing body full of democracy. Now, the... Um, but and in those early days, I don't want to say uh, doing deals with other factions, in the early days, the only position the Socialist League could get in elections was one senator every term because that was elected on a PR basis, whereas in all other elections, first past the post for lower house seats and other seats, then the, um, the right wing always won. And in fact, to call it a left wing executive was something of a misnomer because after the, after the uh, intervention, about half the old executive ended up in the in the in the centre right, as they were called, and and the rest of us were in the in what was the left wing, in the socialist left. So it it wasn't really there were people like Holding Hawke was there. I mean he was he he and I always clashed at the meetings, and so it was about half and half in fact in terms of that. The fact also was that earlier in the year, despite the fact that we were attacked for you know opposing the Vietnam War. We had the biggest, early this earlier the same year, and we couldn't celebrate the 50th anniversary this year in March because of COVID, but there was the 50th anniversary this year also of the moratorium. It happened earlier the same year, the first moratorium, when you had the largest group of people on the streets of Melbourne ever up to that point. And that played a key role. It, the moratorium was organised in local groups, but the ALP, which was a much bigger group in that time and being left-wing, and the left-wing unions played a key role in the organisation of those groups and the moratorium. So these were all factors uh, leading up to the ultimate intervention into the Victorian ALP. But as I say, it was a very, very exciting period. And then slowly they began to do deals. And once people joined the socialist left to get their bum on a, on a parliamentary seat, that was the beginning of its downfall and then eventually, three or four years later, the right-wing unions that had split off, and of course the right-wing unions supported the Vietnam War totally, so it was lucky they weren't around because then we were able to organise and have the moratorium and do all the things we did. But once they came back, the ALP went back to being what the ALP always is, and, and these days even the term socialist left means absolutely nothing in political terms. But there was a period there for two or three years when it was a really exciting place to be, an exciting period. And as I say, Monday, as we as we go to air, and today as we record, is the 50th anniversary of all that happening. Just as an aside, we had a, and this is a little personal story, we had a room. The left of the of the executive had a room in the Travel Lodge Hotel in St Kilda, where they where the federal executive was meeting, and then sacked us and took over the branch, and um, and ran the Victorian Party for a number of for about a year or so until they had elections to put it all back together again with a, a right wing control. But we had the room, and at lunch, the decision was taken around about lunchtime on the Monday, and I'd gone to lunch with George Crawford, who was the state president at the time. He was secretary of the Plumbers Union. And after lunch, George and I came back. Now, I had rung in the morning. I was then journalising for Murdoch, and I'd rung to say that I mightn't even see the day out. I was so ill. I, um, I was almost dying in my bed. And, of course... Once the decision was taken to sack us, all the television wanted to talk to the president, George Crawford. So we walked in the door together in the travel lodge and every camera came on us. <laughs> so I was, to I was totally sprung. Um, <laughs> I'd had this miraculous recovery from my sick bed and I was completely sprung on television that night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
but that's uh, that's just the story of, of that 50, 50 years ago this week that they intervened. And it did lead to a, as I say, it led to the formalization of factions, but it also led to a very exciting period when the left, the left of the ALP, and the ALP in those days had genuine working class people in it, the left unions played a key role, and it was a pretty exciting period. Pre, pre-intervention, the argument was it wasn't democratic, and in some ways it wasn't in a sense, because the left unions met and decided who'd be on the executive, but then it got elected. So in, in a sense, the, the majority at the, at, the, at the conference clearly voted for it, uh, but it did. They did lock out the the extreme right wing, etc. So, so there there probably was. There probably did wasn't as democratic as it ought to have been. But certainly after after federal intervention, the socialist left itself became an incredibly democratic body until bureaucracy and doing deals destroyed it. And then, of course, once the right wing unions came back, uh, the ALP itself um, became more what we know the ALP now is. So. But it was an interesting historical period, I think. Really interesting time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So anyone who's listening, you're listening to City Limits and you're listening to 3CR and that's Kevin Hewitt giving us like a like a there-on-the-ground recount of the situations. What year was it, Kevin, when this all happened? What- 1970, 50 years. <laughs> 50 years. I can't, I can't do maths. I'm not here to do maths. I know 2020 minus 50, you know, 1970 <laughs> it was. <wasn't> it? <laughs> Which also shows how old I was. But I don't want you to laugh at this, but I was actually, you're going to laugh, but try not to. Okay. I was the youth representative on the executive. Oh, cute! Just a little baby Kevin out there fixing the world. That's great. I was in my second year on it, and I was I was I was in my twenties, but I was um yeah I was I was the youth representative. <laughs> now we know how old you are now, which I never knew before. Surely you're keeping that a secret. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Listeners at home, get out your pens and papers. Do your long long. That's right. And work it out. Make it all. Vision. <laughs> if you're a better mathemat- <laughs> if you're a better mathematician than me, you can work it out. Yeah. You can probably figure it out. Yeah, so there we are. Look, just before we go on to housing with Howard, who's hanging on patiently there, uh, interesting that Qantas, as we know, a couple of weeks ago, Alan Joyce announced they were going to have to contract out 2,500 ground jobs there, you know, cleaners and um, baggage handlers and ground staff generally. But they've given them a chance to bid for their own job they can put in a they can put in a tender to get the job the contracting out job but they say well other people doing it are used to doing this they they're used to knocking off other other workers jobs we'd like a, at least some support to be able to hire a consultant but alan joyce said that given the impact of covid and uh, we will not be providing additional funding beyond this support the only support seems to be that you can tender for your own job but then just in case you think they're not going to under have to undercut their current wages and conditions to get it they point out that they have to find they must find a way to save a hundred million dollar a year in staffing costs and another 80 million that the company would require to upgrade in-house equipment over the next five years. And they've been given another couple of weeks only to do all that. So there's no, no way they're going to be able to do it. But on top of that, as, as they cry poor, and that's on top of 6,000 workers sacked earlier in the year, a study by a mob called the ownership matters. I did an analysis of where the job keeper money is going. And in fact, the biggest recipients were those companies in the sectors hit hardest. The biggest recipient of the money has been Qantas with 267 million, Crown 111, G8 Education 86 million, there's state aid for you, and the Star Entertainment 65 million. So two of them, Crown and the Star, the top four, are both both casinos, but 267 million, those four companies account for half of all JobKeeper payments. And on top of that, Qantas received another 258 million of government subsidies. And so it's getting all this massive government money at the same time as it puts, at so far, eight and a half to 10,000 workers' jobs on the line. So I just thought that worth mentioning, that's all. That's really interesting. That sounds like an interesting study. It'd be good if we can find that, put a link in that in the podcast on online on 3cr.org.au. 
Yeah. Well, there's also a lot of lot of um, speculation, more than speculation, I think, going around that a lot of companies getting JobKeeper, the money really isn't ending up with the workers; it's ending up as profit. Or in the, they've actually been declaring dividends based on JobKeeper money they've been getting. So, you know, there's quite a uh, quite a fair bit of rorting. I, mean, I think we'd expect that in capitalism anyway, but a fair bit of rorting going on with the whole system. Yeah. All right. Anyone else had anything to say other before we go into housing? Let's push on and let's talk about housing because I'm sure we've got a lot to cover. All right. Well, we'll, we'll take a break then at this stage and then we'll come back and we'll talk to Howard Morosi about what's going on in the housing area. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10 a.m. every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Okay, back on City Limits and it's Housing Day. Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing is on the line as usual. And Howard, I want to thank you and Karina, by the way, for stepping in when I was laid low with a virus, not the not the dread one, but a, a virus. It was pretty dread last month. But thanks for uh, coming in and uh, and doing a very good program. Thanks, Kevin. Karina was Karina and I are a good team. <laughs> yes, you were. You, were. you, you, you certainly were. Kevin, let's, let's let's go on holiday. Me and Kevin are having a, having a month off, so you guys just look after it for us, all right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. We're out of here. Just before you get on to your items, Howard, one item I found interesting. Um, back in July, Tim Wilson, who is, of course, ex- Institute of Public Affairs and now a liberal backbencher, he published a book called The New Social Contract, which unfortunately I haven't had a chance to read yet or even buy, which is a bit of a pity. But one of the strong arguments he puts forward is that homeowners are far more likely to vote for the Liberal Party compared to other parties. And at the 2019, the last federal election, 46% of homeowners voted Liberal, 33% Labor, only 6% for the Greens. And he's quite concerned that home ownership, as ownership rates have been slowing. The constant increase in the price of housing has made it less affordable for people over time. Home ownership for a couple with dependent children dropped to 38.6% in 2014 from 525 in 2002. Yeah, and he, he, go, he goes on with those sort of figures. Now, I found that interesting because that was in July, but then last week... Uh, suddenly, a group of Liberal MPs, a growing group of Liberal MPs, want home ownership to be a cornerstone principle of the retirement system, and they they want people to be, have a chance to use their superannuation money to buy homes. Uh, it remains absurd we compel a 20-year-old to prioritise retirement in 50 years before home ownership that they'd enjoy the compound benefits for more than 50 years, Liberal M. Tim Wilson said, and um, another liberal Andrew Bragg said that Andrew Bragg is his name that the best thing to avoid poverty in retirement is to secure a home so suddenly after he says the Liberal Party benefits from home ownership it's become a policy and they can use their super money which of course also falls into the fact that the Liberals have a real thing about superannuation and just don't like it so um, Howard uh, interesting point there I thought yeah well the thing is as you know I'm, I'm not a fan of superannuation either uh, because of the fact that it's taking wages away from workers and its uh, income derives from uh, exploitive stock market and property investment. I'm sure the Liberals' motivation is different, but the end result's the same. I, I'm not in favour of super. And as you know, part of my um, argument is always that we should allow people to own their own homes if they want, in the same way that we want to allow people to live in public housing if they want. 
So although we come from different angles and the Liberal Party motivation is their own electoral success, obviously from Tim Wilson's analysis, but although we come from different uh, perspectives, I actually agree that home ownership needs to be protected. And I also agree that people should be allowed to um, prioritise it over superannuation. And I don't even agree with superannuation being compulsory at all, as a matter of fact. You know, I, I want to see a strong pension system. I'd rather see universal basic income and uh, not rely on casino capitalism for retirement, retirement incomes. Mm. So there. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's very good. I've just realised, by the way, we have no, no stage of this program where we actually said who we are, but I think people well, probably worked it out by now anyway. I said who you were, Kevin. Oh, did you? Okay. Well, Meg, Meg, we've sort of, we've said, Meg, we've mentioned your name, we've mentioned Karina, we've met, yeah, we're all, okay, we all know who we are. We've mentioned everybody, yeah. Yeah. Howard, you had some, you said you had a number of items you wanted to raise, um, fire away. Yeah, so we can, we can do an update on uh, public housing. So um, demolition at Walker Street, Northcote is about to start or has started. Uh, you know, they put up fencing and started taking fittings and things things down. And the advice is that the new housing that replaces it will be majority private owners and investors dwellings, not due to be completed till at least 2024. Demolition started at Dunlop Avenue, one of the blocks in Ascot Vale. No plan announced by the state government as to what will happen at the site. And... Uh, Mooney Valley waived, the, or there must be some sort of plan. Mooney Valley waived the plan through last year and denied the residents the right to speak in opposition to that demolition at Dunlop Avenue. So both Labor and Liberals supported the government plan for Ascot Vale. And we know generally the government website says that they're developing approximately 6,000 social and affordable dwellings, including the renewal of 2,500 public housing dwellings. So we know that their policy is to be very vague about what comes uh, to replace what they're pulling down. Um, but the strong inference is that it's not going to be public housing. One of our country uh, members says that the DHS, Department of Human Services, is actually uh, selling off land in vacant land in Maryborough where there had been public housing which had been uh, ruined after house fires. So Mary Burroughs privatising. Last month, I think it was, when I was speaking to Karina, I mentioned that there was a, a car park in Balaclava near St Kilda, which was handed over by the Port Phillip Council um, for community housing. Just an update on that. That appears to be the car park behind Balaclava Station near Balaclava Walk, which goes from Balaclava Station to Carlisle Street. We believe that that car park near Balaclava Station is the third, at least the third, handed over to Housing First by the council to build on. And we believe that Housing First, the community housing organisation, has received $4 million over a 10-year period to build over the first two car parks which they received. And they're now complaining they haven't received any money since 2016. The City of... Port Phillip Mayor Bernadine Voss said that this couldn't have happened without the Victorian government's funding. Well, that's true. Uh, Victorian government's putting something like $20 million into it. Um, she says it's a great example of what can be achieved when local government works with the state and housing associations to provide much needed housing in our backyard and we hope more partnerships will follow. And the Housing First CEO is also saying how wonderful it is as well and why wouldn't they? It's not public housing. It's not going to help the homeless. It's not going to help low people. Um, we've just got to keep saying that and we've got to keep hammering the fact that the term social housing is continually being used by the state government to confuse the issue. And it's now being picked up by a lot of journalists as well. So you'll actually see, I saw an article by Ross Gittins in The Age last week. I saw an article by Peter Mayers in Crikey, both talking about public housing and then switching between that and the term social housing, which just confuses everything because social housing can mean either public housing or community housing. And that's what the government uses. So the government will say we're building all this social housing when we know it's all going to be community housing. So we had Paul Keating coming out, wonderful, wonderful 
uh, read our national breakfast was saying how wonderful Paul Keating is. Keating was quoted as saying, we could be building public housing to boost the economy, build to rent, and if they earn 3%, the funds will buy them. Again, he's talking about privatising the ownership of it, the government putting in the money and then privatising it. He's not talking about genuine public housing. And of course, no one talked about the fact that he was the guy that started the privatisation of public housing when he took over from Bob Hawke in 1991. Um, so in the five years of the Keating government, public housing actually fell 70,000 units and private housing rose 70,000 units. So it looks like what had happened there, I haven't seen the analysis of what caused the increase in the private housing, but it looks like it's just been sold off to um, private developers or it's just been demolished and, and held by the Keating government. So when Bob Hawke left office, public housing was up to its, one of its highest points at just over 7% of all housing in Australia. And when Keating left office, it was down to just over 5%. So again, Keating gets a free kick from the media for being a public housing advocate when his track record is, is actually being one of the destroyers of public housing. Yeah, you, just on that, you, you mentioned uh, it was also the state government cutting back at the same time, of course. Uh, you mentioned the Ascot Vale estate, and a friend of mine was the um, community worker on that estate employed by the Department of Housing back then. But, of course, the Labor government in that period got rid of all those estate workers as well and cut back dramatically. So it was happening federal and state. Yeah, that's right. So Kenneth, Kenneth would have come in just after that policy change in the early 90s, and he was in throughout the 1990s, but of course things didn't improve when uh, Brax won in 99. But are you saying that it was happening even under the Kane government? It was happening under that, yeah, the previous Labor government, certainly they, they cut back, uh, Barry Pullen was the minister at the time, and they, they got rid of those estates, they had workers on pretty well all public housing estates, and they just got rid of them. So that was the beginning of cutbacks there, and it was it was certainly running parallel to the federal government cutting public housing funding at that time. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing was during the 1980s, the federal government was actually increasing public housing. So Hawke actually boosted public housing when he took over. So what what you're describing with the state government is they were cutting the uh, support services without necessarily. They were cutting the support services, and fed the yeah. fed. The federal government was cutting, would certainly cut funding when Brian Howe was Minister of Housing yep. in that later period, yeah. Yep. And when I Googled that, the uh, Paul Keating report, I actually managed to find a report from the Australian Financial Review from 1995. Now, if you Google that again now, you can't find it. I don't know what's going on. I'm not going to allege anything, but I found this article by Tom Burton from the Australian Financial Review uh, where Paul Keating's announcing his public housing reform in 1995. So Keating and Brian Howe, the minister, who's now Professor Brian Howe and is, you know, has been quoted as being the expert on housing when he was actually the guy that started privatisation. So they're announcing in 1995 a switch from funding public housing construction, which they'd already stopped anyway, to subsidising the rents of low-income earners. So... There was 200,000 people on the waiting list at that time in 1995 in Australia, and there was $32 billion worth of uh, public housing. Mm. Keating claimed that the public sector model wasn't working. Many of our housing estates are ageing. They're all suited to the composition of family today's. They're not located where the jobs are. Well, I mean, just listen to that rubbish. Mm. You know, this was 30, 25 years ago. We know a lot of the estates are still in good condition. And we know that they are located too close to where the jobs are because they're in the inner city or just outside the inner city, most of them. Mm. Not suited to the composition of families. Well, that's partially true. But his answer wasn't to build more with larger uh, bedrooms or uh, more bedrooms. It was actually to privatise it. So they set up a market-driven, taxpayer-funded model directing $1.4 billion that had already paid in social security rental assistance each year and much of the $1.5 billion it gave to the states for public housing into rental subsidies. So Keating took all that money and gave it to um, landlords, subsidising them. Mm. And that's Paul Keating for you. Uh, I'll, I'll send you that link so people can actually uh, click on and get it without having to search through Google 
fruitlessly. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yep. And given that Keating was also the architect of the superannuation scheme, you've given him two serves today, uh, Howard. <laughs> well, yeah, and given given that he was a beneficiary of what happened in 1970, you know, I think we can... Yes. We can pretty much say he's the heir apparent of that whole debacle, what happened to you and, and the left in Victoria. Yep. And, of course, Brian Howe is a Victorian MP as well. Well, he came into the socialist left at a point... At that point, I talked about when people were joining to get their bums on seats. Yeah, well, that's actually a really good illustration, isn't it? Yeah. How this guy pretended to be a socialist when he's actually a privatiser and got away with it and still gets away with it. Yep. Um, anyway, just to uh, just to come back to today, uh, we had a really good announcement from the Australian Greens. In Victoria, they're actually promising much more than what they promised before for public housing. So now they're talking about 100,000 new public housing units over the next 10 years, if you look up their policy. Um, initially, they were talking about just building enough to clear the waiting list um, and then a vague promise to keep up with demand. So the waiting list is only, or I wouldn't say only, it was, it was at that time two years ago, about 40,000 units needed to satisfy the waiting list of 100,000 Victorians on the public housing waiting list. Um, so they're now committing even more and the really great thing is that they're now talking about the ultimate goal, which is to make public housing available to everyone. So that 100,000 is not just to clear the, the number of people on the list now, but it's actually to expand it enough for everyone that needs it, uh, which is really fantastic. That would be so awesome. And they're saying, of course, that it's good spending post-COVID for economic recovery. And that's one way of doing it is to, to the construction industry to build all this public housing. Yeah, well, the thing is, as I keep saying, you know, again, I've got a different perspective. That's that's a conventional, uh, I suppose you call it Keynesian kind of philosophy. But for me, you don't just spend money willy-nilly because it boosts your GDP. You focus on what you need. And once you've built what you need and once you're producing what you need, then it's a... It, that's that's the main game. And then you, you either leave it up to... You, you basically want to leave it up to people to decide what gets produced. Anyway, but I'm not going to quibble over it because they're talking about something we need, which is public housing for everyone. Mm, yep. The cost would be around 15 to $20 billion, and they're talking about a mixture of state government and Commonwealth funding uh, through debt. Now, I don't think debt's a good idea. I, I agree with the mo- modern monetary theorists that say you don't need to borrow from the private sector if you're a government. You can just uh, create your own, your own money supply if you're building stuff that you need and you're constructing and you're uh, producing stuff you need. Um, so I'd rather see the government just produce the money. If necessary, tax people that can afford it. But if, if that's not possible, then just produce the money. We're on uh, City Limits. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. We've got Howard Maruzzi joining us on the show today talking about housing. We're going to take a little break and then we'll be back in, in a minute we'll talk about um, more housing issues. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. For an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription, you can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash 
subscribe. back on City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. We're with Howard Morosi talking about housing. Howard, do you have any update about the situation where people experiencing homelessness were placed into hotels at the beginning of the coronavirus um, pandemic? I don't know whether you do or not, but do you have any news about the situation that those people are in currently? Um, yeah, just what I reported last time, which was the government is now committed to um, keeping them in, in hotels till next year at least, and then putting them in private accommodation for some period which hasn't been defined. I couldn't find a commitment to how long they're going to keep the homeless in uh, private accommodation. So presumably what will happen once COVID's under control is they'll just be out of, back on the streets, I would say, because that, the, you know, they've, they've given no commitment to change their policy long term. And again, you know, it's a question of providing public housing because they can't afford private housing. And then once the subsidy stops, they'll just, they won't be able to afford to, to stay in that private housing, as we know. Yeah, okay. Um, now, we were talking about the Greens before. I was going to go to the other extreme and talk about the weird situation with Australia Post and Pauline Hanson and the the uh, public housing towers. I don't know if people saw that. Yeah, that's an interesting item, isn't it? Yeah, go on about that, yeah. So Australia Post Chief Executive Christine Holgate threatened to call the police to force the City of Melbourne to deliver 100 of Pauline Hanson's stubby holders to a lockdown suburban public housing <coughs> tower in July, which is just bizarre. What? You know, like the volunteers couldn't get food parcels and necessities in and uh, Australia Post was trying to force the stubby holders from Pauline Hanson, after Pauline Hanson had pretty much run down mm. public housing residents uh, shortly before that. And uh, yeah, so the, the CEO of the Australia Post actually directly got involved, which according to the article was a bit unusual in this kind of situation. Australia Post was claiming that they had to honour their obligation to deliver uh, items in a, in a general sense. Um, but it's, of course, the city council was saying it was an issue of safety, COVID safety, uh, in delivering stuff which wasn't actually necessary. Mm. And the other interesting aspect of it was that Pauline Hanson was actually, her vote was being relied on in Parliament to get through a relaxation of Australia Post's obligations to deliver. So Australia Post wanted to um, get the government to relax their obligations, I think, to once every two days instead of every day, that sort of thing. And and yet, and, and ironically, they're actually trying to force delivery in this case. And there was reports of the CEO of Australia Post meeting with Pauline Hanson as well. So, you know, almost comic, but very sinister and unsavoury little episode there mm-hmm. in relation to public housing. And the stubby holders had a message like, I, I say what you want to say, or something like that on it. I can't remember what the words were, but it was... I've got the guts to say what you're thinking. Wow. That's right, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure public housing tenants like calling themselves all the sort of names that Pauline Hanson did. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Pauline. Yeah. <laughs> Just to move on from that little episode, uh, The Guardian was reporting rents in the CBD dropping. Uh, so, Sydney reported a 20% drop, Melbourne a 17% drop in CBD rents over the past year. Uh, stamp duty dropped 19% as a result of the drop-in activity, which obviously worries the state government. Um, but again, that, sh- that should be an obligation of the federal government to cover state governments for their loss of revenue due to COVID. But I think we also need to mo- move away from stamp duty. You know, my, my position is that stamp duty is actually an increase in the cost of housing if you want to own a house, and we should abolish stamp duty altogether and rely on other taxes instead of stamp duty. So the government, federal government should be providing more funds to the states so they don't have to rely on stamp duty at all. And the other thing is that this reliance on stamp duty actually increases the um, pressure on state governments to keep up the price of houses because the higher the, the price of houses, the more revenue they get. We want the thing to move in the other direction. So we've got to break that nexus between 
state government revenue and, and the high cost of housing. There were reports of people moving back in a state from Melbourne to be with their families and also moving to the regions. So that's all taking pressure off the housing situation in Melbourne, which is we're actually seeing how the private market does work. I mean, we do hear a lot of the time that, you know, it's, it's a matter of matching up supply with demand, but we're seeing here an excess of supply in housing and a private market or a private system will actually drop their prices in that situation. Mm. And as we know, we don't have foreign students to the, the same degree. We don't have, we can't have immigration. So the population pressures are actually reducing the, uh, effectively reducing rents as well as reducing house prices in, in Melbourne and Sydney. And indeed also the, um, a lot of those apartments around the inner city in particular, which a lot of people, investors' apartments uh, are vacant at the moment. So there's, um, there's increasing vacancies in, in those rental apartments, uh, which the, uh, the, the industry itself says could cause some real problems for people being able to meet their commitments in relation to paying them off. But um, so, yeah, so the rental situation at the moment is, is looking better for renters, I guess, is it? Or, or is it? It's still pretty high, though. The rent is, even though yeah. it's going down, the rent for a lot of people is still bloody high, though. Howard, right. yeah, we've had we've had massive increases for like thirty years. Mm. So to get to a reasonable rent, you'd probably have to at least cut it in half, mm. maybe even more, to get to a fair rent. Um, but the whole thing is, it's it's all built, it's all built on high house prices. So the um, high house prices for an investor means they have to charge high rents to cover that the um, higher house price. And um, so effectively, you know, there's always going to be that problem in cutting rents unless the government does something to intervene in the system. So we want to see intervention by the government to control rents. We want to see government intervention to control negative gearing. And we want to see intervention to, um, well, I mean, the question is, do we want to see a situation where the government's deliberately uh, bringing in so many people that there's obviously upward pressure on prices or would you want to see some sort of limit on how many people... Uh, I mean, I know this is a touchy point with a lot of people. It's not to say no people should come in, but do we want to see immigration at the levels we have at the moment? Or do we want to just switch to the government building public housing, which would take the pressure off the private system completely so that the people... The government could actually build student housing, which it has started to do, which takes the pressure off the private system where you have a high number of overseas students coming into Melbourne and Sydney. So that's another way of doing it. But the current system is just not doing it because it's designed not to do it. The current system is designed to put pressure on uh, rents and house prices because it delivers a higher return to investors. Yeah. And that's the key to the system at the moment. You have to move away from that economic culture. Mm. Yeah. Now, Meg, did you have something there, Meg? No, just agreeing. Yeah. You go on. All right, okay. Because around, it's around about now that the original agreements in terms of rent deferment and, and people getting all sorts of concessions um, were about to run out. Is that, is that a problem now? Does think that these things have to be renewed? No, because the government, the state government has, to their credit, um, now that we don't have Shane here, he can't contradict me, but <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get Shane's opinion on this. But the Treasurer of Tim Palace, Victorian Treasurer, announced the state's moratorium on evictions and rental increases will be extended till the end of March next year. Oh, good, uh, yeah. Rent, yeah, rent relief grants will also be extended till then, and they've been increased from 2000 to $3,000. The asset threshold for the grants will increase from 5000 to 10000 So state government doing good things, but as I say, we'll throw to uh, Shane when he comes back from his holiday. Yeah. Yeah. All right, yeah. The, did you, I suppose you saw the dummy spit uh, by the Royal Estate Institute of Victoria last week um, after the government announced that the, you know, that the, the um, lockdown wouldn't be lifted and and a, a ban on physical inspections of homes will go to at least the end of October, and they came out and and ordered their members to refuse to negotiate rent reductions. Um, don't negotiate with tenants on hardship, but rather push them to make their own inquiries with consumer affairs until the Andrews government engages in genuine consultation with the real estate industry. And many real estate agents have come out, in fact, and attacked their own body over it. 
but um, quite a dummy spit. Hmm. Yeah, well, there you go. There's there's one union we don't we don't like, the real estate agents union, and uh, you know the so they're actually threatening to go on strike effectively. So it's a strike by the real estate agents against the government. Um, so I think they should bring in um, the anti-union laws against the Real Estate Agents Institute there. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Slog <laughs> it to them. But I actually didn't see, the art- didn't see the article, but again, it just sounds like, you know, real estate agents, ref- you know, refusing to do, play their part in the, um, in the COVID situation when we've got a pandemic mm. and taking it out on tenants, which is just not on. Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned build to rent, but I don't think you meant it in the in the in the commercial sense necessarily. But that's an, another area now where there's a, a real move by big companies for these build to rent units. But they're of course not going to do nothing to lower the cost of rent or get uh, people who really have difficulties with housing affordability into any of those units. They're just presumably all going to be pretty upmarket units. Um, just they'll be built to rent rather than own. Yeah, well, I guess I don't actually know a lot about that, but I presume what's happening is that the company, the construction companies are actually, instead of selling them off to either homeowners or investors, are actually acting as an investment landlord company as well. Is that what it is? Yeah, well, it's the big, Murbach and the big developers are involved and they they, they claim that, they, they say that in the current market conditions, um, build to rent, is more profitable, I think, than build to sell. That's how they, that's what they seem to be saying. Yeah. Well, you know, to me, I, I've never really understood the economic logic of the construction companies because when you've got rents going up um, and capital gains going up astronomically for such a long time, it makes sense from a capitalist point of view to actually hold the asset and sell it instead of selling it off to someone else who's going to reap the benefits especially if you've got a lot of money yourself as a construction company, surely you would actually put some of your capital aside to actually own the thing and administer the thing as a landlord. So I don't know why they haven't done it already, effectively. But, yeah, but you're right. They're doing it for the, from the point of view of maximising the profits, not to actually benefit uh, the, the tenants. Um, but, again, we see that as a, as a policy that the Labor Party uh, and some of the academics are actually advocating you know, I think some of, yeah, I won't say who, but some some um, academics that should know better have have been advocating built to rent, and I I don't agree with it. Mm. And of course, we've also still got the home builder and the home whatever the other one is for renovation schemes going, with a lot of money going out to those as well. Yeah, well, Kevin, I should say when you're away, I confess to Karina that I'm I'm a bit in the dark these days because my supply of the Age newspaper has been cut off. What? Um, but hopefully that'll, that'll be restored this week when our visiting restrictions are lifted somewhat. So I haven't been able to follow up on, on, on those kind of comments, so I can't really comment on that one. Yeah, there was a, there was a story in the, um, in the Fin Review last week that uh, one, that a big, a big developer they managed to get round, somehow get round the idea that they, that they can't, that for apartments, they, they sold a hell of a lot of apartments based on the access to home builder because they were going to start building fairly soon. A lot of apartments can't because they can't give the guarantee of when they'll actually start building. But also a separate story that there's been a lot of first home buyers moving into into the first home buyer scheme as well, uh, but they're being forced because of the restrictions on the cost of the housing, and it has to be... Um, 700,000 Sydney, 600,000 in Melbourne being forced into outer urban areas. And so that in itself can create problems. We talked on how, on our transport program about the fact that uh, studies, have, you know, we know anyway, but recent studies have shown that if you live in outer areas, your overall costs, including transport, etc., are quite high. So we're forcing people into areas which one are probably encroaching on environmental land and the ecology, but also uh, ultimately long-term financial problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, the home, the home. What's it called? Home builder. The home builder. There's also the first home buyer one as well. There's a couple of schemes going parallel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the home builder is, you know, something which we can't support. First home buyer scheme. Well, you know, like you want to help. First home buyers, so I don't have that sort of problem. But 
the whole thing about government subsidy is that I've actually done, I've gone through a whole set of proposals, which if you implemented across the government sector and the private sector, means that you actually bring down the, the cost of buying a house and also rents to the point, not through subsidy, but through actually regulation of price and also regulation of finance. So for example, you would actually lend money to home buyers through a government bank, which had you know, low interest and also would allow a moratorium for you if you lost your job, all that sort of thing. And to the point where you'd actually wouldn't need any first home buyer subsidy at all. So it's more a question of actually properly regulating the private system as well as strengthening the public system, which would mean you wouldn't need to subsidise it. Mm. I know several people who've wanted to build a small house or buy a cheap house. Like in lots of parts of Tasmania, you could buy a home for $90,000 and banks will not lend to anyone. Uh, like a, a small amount, basically. They're like, oh, you can take a you you can take a personal loan for like sixty thousand. You know, people get personal loans, and they're at high. Their personal exactly. loans are at like ten or fifteen yeah. percent. Yeah, and then um, to actually, yeah. you know, so people who want to live sustainably and have a small footprint and have a small home and have enough to pay for half of a build of a of a small home on a little block of land somewhere. That's really interesting. Finance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because the banks have this, they've got a really different agenda. That it's, it's not about building sustainable, small footprint, financially sustainable homes. It's about getting people into mortgages and having them paying them off for 30, 40 years. <laughs> yeah, or, or getting them at even higher mm-hmm. interest rate yeah. type loans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's interesting too because, like, they're, they're actually... Um, the thing about a mortgage is it gives them security, it gives the bank security over the, the money if the, the borrower goes broke. But I guess when the, when the amount's lower, they're not that worried about the security of the, the, the money they lend, which then gives them more flexibility to charge more interest. And that's, that's where they make their money in that case. Yeah, yeah, right. Because when you think about it, if the banks are actually uh, borrowing at close to zero percent and lending out at something like three or four percent that's not a very mm-hmm. big margin for yeah. them under a mortgage so the way they're actually making their money from mortgages is by inflating the system so that eventually the um the amount of money that they it's not it's not the margin they're making it's the amount of money they're mm. they're lending out which continually increases from year to year which means that they actually make their gains by getting more and more people into mortgages yeah with, with more yeah. money so so there's more money being lent out rather than a higher a higher gap between what they're lending it out for i.e about three or four percent and what they're borrowing it mm. which is close to zero mm. you know whereas at the other hand you know their personal loans they're making astronomical returns on investment you know something like 10 or 15 percent but that's what the basic return on capital is mm. most investors are actually getting either through capital gains or interest or dividends, they're getting somewhere between 10 and 15% a year. Yeah. So it's just standard return for them as it would be for any investor. And then that's the other basic problem of our system. You know, like I, I'm not necessarily opposed to a private system, but I'm opposed to a private system which keeps wages down to 3% growth and has capital gains of 10 to 15%, whereas it should be the other way around if anything. Mm. Mm. And we're coming to the near the end of the show. Sorry, um, Kevin, do you have any final questions? We'll have to wrap it up in about. No, there was also uh, Angley Care has called for more spending on on social housing, but we've almost all covered that. I think anyway, when they, by social housing they don't mean public housing, unfortunately. But no, that's that's about it. We are running out of time. But um, mm. Howard, look once again, thanks for uh, coming on and filling us in. We'll get more of it next month, and probably have Shane next month, so you can you can spar with him. No, just clarification. Shane's the expert on on his area, and I don't contradict him. You know, if he's okay. <laughs> well, you can agree with him then next month. <laughs> okay, you can agree with him. <laughs> All right, Meg. Thank Karina and thank thank yourself. And um, and next week, next week, I've got no idea what we've got on the program next week, but we'll sort something out. Yes. Okay. Thanks so much, Karina, doing all our um, 
recording, working everything out from home, doing all the editing, making it possible for us to go to air in the middle of this crazy time that just keeps on going and going and going. Thank you so much, Howard, for all your expertise. Thank you, Meg Kimberg, for just turning up today. Thank you, Kevin Healy, for your years, decades of service to this, to the cause, to the left-wing factions. <laughs> see, thanks <Yeah>. a lot. <laughs> we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for joining us on City Limits. We're going to see you out with a song this morning. This is Frisk Me Down by Catch a Fire. Stay tuned for Anarchist World this week with the indelible Dr. Joe Toscano. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio.
3CR Community Radio, 855am. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.